So yes, yes, yesterday we learned about the two sources of credit, uh, credit arising out of saving and credit arising out of consumption, and we talked about the, uh, the, the real bill and we went through an example of the mechanism of how a real bill is created and how a real bill is liquidated. So today, Professor will be continuing that and we will be talking about the invention of discounting uh, and the social circulating capital as well. Professor. Thank you. Uh, this is going to be a busy day. If you look at the uh, program and timetable, you will notice that today we have two lectures actually three sessions, because in the morning we have two lectures, the afternoon is Sandeep's. The reason for this is that uh, we structured this course in such a way that there are 20 sessions, but we want to do it in nine days, so one of these days we have to have three sessions, and that's today. Uh, and uh, for that reason, instead of the discussion period after 11 o'clock, we'll have another <coughs> lecture. So that's, uh, you, I hope everybody has a copy of this program, and that's reflected in that program. So this, uh, session which I'm doing right now is about the invention of discounting. Let me just recall something from yesterday. We had this little uh, presentation, dramatic presentation. There was the cotton dealer and then there was this spinner who, who was spinning the cotton into yarn and then there was the weaver and uh, the cloth merchant. So this is a river, okay? River, emptying into the great ocean of consumption. because this is just one. Here's another. Starting with the uh, grain dealer, 
and then the Miller and then the Baker and the ultimate consumer comes here. So this server also empties into the same ocean of consumption. Now I emphasize the very special role of these two because they are in effect the retail merchants who have an immediate contact with the consumer and it's their palm which is hit by the gold coin first before these other guys will see the gold this guy will see it first and he will have to make distribution to the other participants. So uh, they have a special role to play. Now, I'd like to squeeze in here the type of financing which is involved. We, I think it came out pretty well yesterday from our little play, little presentation, that in the beginning there were three papers, three real bills involved, and we just call them the one which is between these two is called the uh, cotton dealer on spinner. Let's put hyphen between on spinner. Oh, thank you. And then there's another real bill arising when the spinner passes the yarn on to the weaver and call it spinner on weaver. And uh, the third one, and the last one, is the weaver on clothier. Is this the right way to pronounce Claudia? Yep. Claudia. <laughs> now, our little presentation of the play uh, made a point that these three real bills are not really equal because the really important bill is this, the last. So in a way, actually, these other two are superfluous. And when they tried their clearing system, these uh, merchants, they decided to do away with this and this and keep this one. This was a tremendous, I mean, you may not see it at first blush, but a tremendous improvement. 
because it was the first instance that the bill, this bill started circulating and could be used as a means of payment. Before that, it was just one-on-one -on -one dealing between two merchants who knew, knew each other very well. But it could well be that this cotton dealer has never seen, never even heard of the cloth merchant and vice versa. Yet he is quite happy and ready to accept his paper. You see? <coughs> and that's because of the dynamics involved in that trading system. So this is what I call small step for a man, but a huge step for mankind when they discover that the real bill can circulate. That's the importance, and that's the insight of Adam Smith. He could uh, see. Now, same thing here. I don't want to write down. There is a great dealer on Miller paper. There's a Miller on Baker paper, but it's this Miller on Baker paper which is important because that will be acceptable in payment. You could put in the grain farmer as well if you wish. And so the, this is how circulation of real bills started. And uh, the merchandise disappears in the ocean of consumption. Uh, today we are going to see that actually it's even better than that because not only does this weaver on clothier paper circulates in this river, this is a river, okay? This is another river, emptying the same ocean. But there will be cases when this bill can be used for payment here or another or another one, you see. So we aggregate these rivers. There are lots of these rivers, you know, all emptying into the ocean. And the paper of the last stage, originating from the last stage, of the trade is a vertical uh, layering, but there is a possibility for horizontal payment as well. This is what today's morning lecture is about. You see, so I just wanted to uh, put this here for everybody to see the structure. There are lots of rivers but we aggregate them, so there's just one, we imagine there's just one huge river of producing consumer goods in very high demand, and the paper arising out of the last transaction in each case here will be able to circulate vertically as well as horizontally. So it becomes, in effect, money. The real bill becomes money, thanks to this uh, discovery that it's acceptable in payment for all the merchants who are producing for the consumer.
And uh, not only is it acceptable, but it, it's just like money. The only limitation is that it's ephemeral, in other words, it has a very short lifetime, <coughs> 91 days, and, uh, and it has to be the gold coin. It has to mature into gold coin. It cannot mature into another piece of paper. At the end of the period, which is 91 days, it has to be paid in gold, and that's guaranteed by the fact that the consumer wants these goods badly enough. You see, the consumer, just lukewarm, doesn't want it so badly, then it, the system breaks down. In other words, such, such merchandise, which are marginal, the consumer may be persuaded to buy it if you bombard them with heavy advertisement and promotion and heavy, then the consumer will buy. But next day he may wake up and say, oh, that wasn't such a good idea. I never buy it again because I can do without or something else. Then the paper, the real bill, so-called, because it's not real in that case, is going, is going to refuse to circulate. It will not be acceptable because uh, people know that the underlying consumer good is not in such a high demand. It's just in a marginal demand, so it now, how do you recognize that this is the case from the spread? Because we know from Manger that there is never a monolithic price. There's always a spread between the ask and bid prices. Now, the real bill is such a fantastic instrument because the spread between the ask and bid price in the bill market is very, very small. Well, should there be any doubt about the intentions of the consumer and his or her taste may change or there could be any number of reasons why the consumer who liked this merchandise very much yesterday, today, not interested, sorry. How do you notice that? The spread, which is normally extremely slim, widens. This is the red flag, the flashing red light, that something happened, careful, this paper, is not a not a real real bill. It's a sub-real. It's, its quality has deteriorated. So unless you really have to, don't touch it. So there is a built-in warning system, and it, it has worked uh, beautifully over the uh, 
centuries. After all, we go back to the 14th century when <coughs> real bill circulation started. So I am going to read now. We are talking about lecture six in the invention of discounting. And um, there is on page two this continuation of the story, uh, the second greatest story, in which the gentle reader learns how discounting was invented. The weaver and clothier Bill was singularly well suited to play the role of means of exchange. It's this one, but you could also think of the uh, Miller and Baker bill. The clothier came into daily contact with the gold coin in the course of his business. By contrast, the weaver and the spinner didn't see much gold in the pursuit of their trade because they were just issuing or receiving, endorsing real bills, paper. But it was the last guy who saw gold every day, the retail merchant. <clears throat> Often, the clothier found himself <clears throat> in the position that he could prepay the bills he has accepted. In other words, uh, the clothier was very much aware that he accepted the bill when the weaver built him the last bill in that vertical structure. So that was a liability for him. And when business was brisk for him, he sold cloth very fast. And the gold coins were accumulating in his still. And as much as he liked the brisk business, that gold was a liability for him for the following reason. It was just sitting there doing nothing. Whereas he had obligations outstanding. So it was in his interest to collect these gold coins in a bag and take it over to the weaver who held his paper and say, hey, my bills won't mature for another month, but I have this gold here, so I want to discharge my liability. Here's the gold, give my paper back. I'll tear it up because I uh, don't want to have this obligation anymore. And, uh, and the, the deal was done because it, both guys had an interest to put that thing behind them. Now, and that's the fine point here. The, the clothier in my story was an extremely clever man. <clears throat> and he had an excellent grasp of this whole business of real bill circulation. So he would prepay his bills, but 
for a consideration. He was not going to pay 100% of the face value. Why? Because there was still a whole month before the bill expired. So he would persuade the weaver to take less than the face value. And he was banking on the possibility or on the actual situation that the weaver will need the gold coin for his business or for other business consumption. And in any case, the gold was an attractive instrument. It's just that the clothier didn't want to have idle gold, which he, he wanted. He, it was part of his trading capital, after all, and he wanted to earn a return. So what he did was he said, look, you take less than the face value. And here it is in gold. I'm prepaying it. It's not paying, but prepaying. A very important difference. And this prepayment feature is what you want to understand uh, in, in the story of the real bills and discounting. And even the name was changed. They did not call it prepaying the bill anymore. They started calling it discounting the bill. Okay, the, you can discount a bill which still has time left to maturity. You see, that's important. So it's called bill discounting. The clothier went to the weaver and offered to discount the bill. And uh, this meant, of, as the name suggests, a reduction to the face value of the bill proportional to the number of days left to maturity. And uh, there was, of course, a factor. Just, you have to multiply the number of days by a factor. And this factor came to be known as the discount rate. And we are going to discuss in detail what determines the height of the discount rate. But let's just go through this slide of thought first. The weaver didn't object to receiving less than the face value of the bill. He needed ready cash and he could not get it on any better terms than accepting the offer of the clothier. You see, that's the point. He, he benefited from this. He didn't lose, really, because he needed the gold coin for his various purchases. And that was the best term. He looked around and talked to bankers, talked to this, that, that, that. But nobody could offer a better term than the Claudier if, if you wanted cash gold. Okay. So for his part, the Claudier wanted the custom of the weaver because he was an obvious supplier of bills for his budding discount business, because that's what the shoe cloth merchant had in mind. He sensed there's something big there. He's going to hit 
gold soon. Why? Because he wants to give up his cloth business and go into the discounting business. He felt that he was superior. He understood the whole thing better than anybody else. And he wanted to be, be the first to start the discount house. So he wanted to have a good relationship with the weaver who was a supplier of bills, future supplier. And so both men had a symbiosis trying to come to terms. And they did, and they came up with a suitable discount rate which satisfied both. So that, that was another huge step for mankind, small step for a man, huge step for mankind. Discounting was invented. <clears throat> Both parties benefited from, from it. After the latest innovation, people no longer talk, talked about paying the bill, they talked about discounting the bill. The origin of discount is merchant custom. You see, uh, and this is where these detractors, Adam Bill's, Adam Smith's real bill doctrine are mistaken. It has really never ever happened that the cotton dealer and the spinner or the grain dealer and the miller exchange, made the exchange and paid gold. You know, there is no such a thing as 100% gold standard work. All the payments. It's physically impossible. Because as the division of labor gets more refined, you know, four merchants in the food chain Handling the mature, handing on the maturing merchandise one another could be expanded to 40 or more. Now, at each stage, they would have to pay gold. That means from four transactions paid for in gold, you have 40 transactions paid in gold. That's a 10 times a 10 times increase in the volume of gold needed to have the economy. In other words, there would be a huge uh, obstacle in the way of refining the division of labor. So, you know, the various possibilities of making production and trade more efficient would be blocked if you insisted that everybody must pay gold, period, no paper, you see. In fact, and I'm going back to Adam Smith and his metaphor, which I like very much, and I, I'm sure you will like it too, or you may already know this, in The Wealth of Nations, he makes this metaphor. He talks about a sky, 
wagons. Highway in the sky. Highway in the sky. This is how he explains uh, the justification for real bills. He says that when you take or build roads from the producer to the market where these wagons will go and carry the merchandise to the market. Then you take land out of production, land which previously could have been used to plant, produce. So he asked the question, why not restore this land which was overtaken by the roads and construct a wagon way in the sky. And he immediately apologizes profusely to his readers that I am terribly sorry, I'm ter terribly sorry for this violent metaphor. Because of course the year was 1776 and nobody thought of air cargo at that time. See, it was a violent metaphor for him. So he thought it was his duty to apologize to his readers, doing violence on their imagination. It's too much to imagine. Wagon way in the sky. Well, for today there's no problem with wagon way in the sky, but in his time it was. So there it was, the wagon way in the sky. What is it? It is the real bill circulation, which takes gold and replaces gold with real bill circulation which can circulate, see? And then you can restore gold to its original purpose. The soil, which can grow crops, you see? So that's the whole idea. I think it's a beautiful idea how you can restore uh, soil to production, direct purposes of production. The same way gold <coughs> has to be restored. So gold uh, uh, can look after uh, other production problems having to do with uh, slower maturing merchandise or things which cannot be financed with paper because the paper just won't fly in that case. We'll soon see another example. Brick Bricks can't fly. Cloth can. The paper drawn uh, by uh, the weaver on the cloth merchant flies on its own wings and under its own steam. Now, you, are a, uh, you have a brick factory and you try to imitate the weaver and say, my bricks will fly because I can write a real bill and put it into circulation. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the brick just won't fly. And the reason is that brick is not consumed the same way as cloth is. Uh, the brick is built into a house 
which is probably going to be around for at least 30 years, maybe longer. Some European buildings are several uh, hundred years old. So in other words, there has to be a mortgage, and the mortgage is definitely not the same as a real bill. And uh, for that reason, the bricks cannot fly. Sorry. And those who are involved in production of bricks better take notice that this is the case, like it or not. By the way, on Lombard Street, which is the financial district of London, there was a saying uh, more than a hundred years ago, which uh, long since forgotten. The saying is, there's no easier uh, occupation in the world than that of the banker, provided that he can tell apart a real bill from a mortgage. That's all. As long as you must, here's a mortgage, here's a real bill. For most people, outsiders, they are both financial instruments. End of the story. Now, a banker has to see the tremendous difference. This one circulates, this one doesn't. This one finances consumer goods in very high demand. Now, of course, houses can be in very high demand, but they are not consumed the same way as other consumer goods for immediate consumption. And for that reason, uh, this paper can fly and this paper cannot. And it's the job of the banker to be able to see the difference. And of course, there are there's a whole spectrum of papers. These are just two extremes. And the banker will have to see the spectrum and place it and judge it, whether it's suitable for his portfolio or not suitable. And accordingly, he will land on it or he may decline or uh, he will charge more interest. So this is a very important distinction. Now, continuing my recital of this uh, story on how this discounting was discovered. So the uh, Clothier invented discounting. And soon after, he started posting his discount rate, which could be adjusted. It could be adjusted as frequently as every day. He posted a different one because he had ways to find out what the consumer wanted. And if the consumer changed his taste or changed his willingness to spend or whatever, then he would change the discount rate, which would almost immediately reflect the uh, mood or the changing mood of the consumer. So uh, 
The discount rate was then the guiding star of all the merchants involved in production for the consumer goods market because they were watching it and a higher discount rate was a warning signal. Watch out, the consumer is retrenching. So perhaps you should be careful how much you prepare for the market because the consumer may not be ready for it. On the other hand, a drop in the discount rate meant it was a message to the effect that all right, now the consumer is ready to spend. So get the merchandise out and to the market as uh, as uh, expeditiously as you can. So uh, using a technical word, the height of the discount rate was governed by the propensity to consume, which is very different from the rate of interest, which is guided by the propensity to save. Very important difference. And I just harp back on the distinction we made at the beginning that there is credit arising out of savings and the gauge of that is the rate of interest which is reciprocal of the propensity to save. So the higher the propensity to save, the lower is the rate of interest. And the lower the propensity to save, higher the rate of interest. In exactly, but that's not our job here, of course. We are talking about not the rate of interest, but the discount rate. But it works the same way. The higher the propensity to consume, the lower the discount rate. And the lower the propensity to consume, the higher the discount rate. So that's what the cloth merchant observed. And this is what he uh, did when he changed his posted discount rate every day. He looked around, asked around, and from his own business experience, he concluded that now we have to raise the discount rate. We have to lower it. So there's no politics involved, no uh, uh, outside that it was just derived, the, the uh, uh, intelligence was derived from business experience, what the height of the discount rate uh, would be. So that was my story second greatest story ever told. And now some comments. It's very, very important to see the difference between discounting or lending and borrowing because they are entirely different. There are similarities, but as far as the sources 
of credit are concerned, as far as the purposes to which it can be put, are entirely different. So there is, an, I already had an opportunity to talk about this yesterday, I am repeating it. There is no lending and borrowing involved in discounting real bills. So the transactions there, transactions there are all <coughs> uh, they all come under the heading clearing and the heading landing and borrowing is entirely different. So here this is all part of the clearing. There is a demand, it's given, the consumer demand is there, and those who produce to satisfy this demand come under the heading of clearing. There's no landing and no borrowing involved. This is a very serious mistake, but most economic textbooks would make that mistake. They just don't see the difference between the two, but it's a very important difference. <coughs> 